EI. Chaos EI. 88.9. 88.9. FM. And FM. In Irvine. In Irvine. The opinions and views expressed on this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about the show or other programs on KUCI, please log on to KUCI.org for the latest program schedule. Good morning. This is your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the October 22, 2013 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, we have a heady group of men with the Alliance for Boys and Men of Color, named the Rubén Lizardo, Rafael Sorzano, and Assemblyman Stephen Bradford. Then, in the second half, we hear from Professor Richard Matthew, founder and director of the Center for Unconventional Security Affairs at UCI, who speaks calmly, you might say a deadpan, about the host of environmental travesties that undermine security anywhere and everywhere. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a short interlude. Welcome back to the show. Governor Brown's signing of the extensive array of public bills brought to him from the state legislators, getting a lot of interest actually all over the country, capping a very productive legislative session. Among those achievements were those of my first guest today, individuals who are part of the Alliance for Boys and Men of Color. They are Ruben Lizardo, Rafael Sorzano, and Assemblyman Stephen Bradford to talk about those bills, now laws, that pertain to minority males in the state of California. First, Ruben Lizardo, Policy Link, Senior Director, oversees the public investments in infrastructure that they're equitable and generate community benefits. Prior to joining Policy Link, he was with California Tomorrow addressing diversity and equity issues. He also served as Director of the Community Planning Economic Development Program at Los Angeles Trade Technical College. He is a former president of the Los Angeles County Human Relations Commission and was awarded the California Wellness Foundation's California Peace Prize for his his work to address root causes of youth violence. He currently serves on the boards of Barrios Unidos, the Emerald Cities Collaborative, the CD Tech Center, and the Brown Boy, that's B-O-I, project. He comes to us today from Oakland. Rafael, my second of three guests, Rafael Ramirez Solozano, started his 20 years of education immigration advocacy when, as a Santa Ana High School student, he organized against Prop 187, a controversial ballot measure that sought to limit services to undocumented immigrants in California. As a student at UC Berkeley, he started his involvement in building multiracial alliances. After graduating from UC Berkeley, Rafael worked as a history teacher in the Bay Area and later became a community organizer in Oakland and Alameda counties. In 2006, he joined the Orange County 
Human Relations, and he currently is a part of the Santa Ana Boys and Men of Color Working Group, focusing his attention on the school-to-prison and deportation pipeline, a system that locally in Orange County accounts for 43% of youth deportations in the state. That's immense. His work has been recognized by the Los Alamitos Unified School District, Anaheim Union High School District Administrators, and he has served as a Human Relations Commissioner for the City of Santa Ana. He comes to us today from nearby in Santa Ana. And my third guest is Assemblyman Stephen Bradford. After attending Perch Avenue Elementary School, Henry Clay Junior High School, and Gardena High School, Bradford earned a degree in political science from Cal State University, Dominguez Hills, then had a career as a public affairs executive at Southern California Edison and IBM at the L.A. Conservation Corps and made history as the first African-American member of the Gardena City Council, where he served for 12 years. As a state representative of the 62nd District, uh, which his incumbency began in a special election in 2009, the district does include Gardena, Hawthorne, Inglewood, Lawndale, Lennox, El Segundo, Del Air, Marino Del Rey, West Athens, Westmont, and parts of it's essentially the cities that ring LAX. And so... He is a assemblyman uh, serving as chairman of the Assembly Committee on Utilities and Commerce, as well as the Assembly Select Committee on the Status of Boys and Men of Color. Well, welcome to the show, Ruben Lizardo, Rafael Sorzano, and Assemblyman Stephen Bradford. Hello. Yes, good to be here with you. That is? That's Ruben Lizardo. Ruben? Sorry, good to be here. Hoping. How about if we get started with your questions and then you try, I can jump on one of them. And you try to get them back. Well, they have my number. And so, well, we'll work this out. It always works, though. So I'm glad that, uh, Rubain, that you're here with us. So welcome to the show in any event. And all three of you, were you here, you'd be presenting uh, some profiles of vigorous social persistence with great resumes, all in the service of young men who struggle against many societal currents. You're a real model for us all. And those, of course, the at-risk population will tell us, Rubain, why is a focus on boys and men of color so important for every Californian? Well, let me start by just um, a gentle way. Go right ahead. Uh, in a gentle way, kind of rephrasing how we started this. Uh, we talked a little bit about um, minority youth, and as it turns out, the demographics are the other way around, that 70% of Californians in the age of 25 identify as of color, be they African-American, Latino, or Asian Pacific Islanders, well as uh, many other young folks that are immigrants from other countries and regions, including the Middle East and Eastern Europe. And so, as it turns out, um, if we were really to use those terms of minority and majority, actually kids of color and immigrants are close to being, are either the majority or and there are others who, if we start, if we keep on with those those phrases, there are other populations that will actually are better defined as a minority. So, but but bottom line, young men of color, um, their health and their success, it's so important because of the size of this population that if we don't turn around their high school um, persistence, and so many of them are being pushed out of schools through the use of uh, uh, suspension and discipline policies that actually uh, are intended to make the classrooms perhaps more workable, but basically we're losing the kids that we most need to stay in school if we want to have a thriving economy, given the numbers that I laid out, that 
in essence, the workforce, not of tomorrow, but of today, is really beginning to reflect uh, these communities that have long been left out of opportunity. So our work on uh, trying to improve outcomes for young men of color is really on behalf of the state of California. We want to see California thrive, and we know that it cannot thrive if some of our, our community folks are left out of opportunity. And so that's, that's the purpose of the alliance. I'll um, say just one, two more things about the alliance, and then I'll stop. Uh, it was formed. It has uh, local campaigns going, and hopefully we get Rafael back on. They're he, all he on, I think. The work in Santa Ana. There are local campaigns underway in Santa Ana, in Fresno, L.A., Oakland, Stockton, Coachella, Salinas, uh, different parts of the state that are struggling with these very same issues have efforts led by young people to improve either the health systems or the education systems or how the uh, juvenile justice system is dealing with them and the workforce training system. Uh, And then we are lucky to have uh, Mr. Bradford and a host of elected officials at the state legislature uh, who are also committed to seeing barriers removed for this population and their success improved uh, within the legislature, as well as a whole host of state policy partners that have been working in those same arenas that I talked about. So the alliance is both local and state-focused, and I know that today you wanted to talk a little bit about the gains that were made in in the first half of the legislative session. We will. Let's just first do a sound check. Do we have Assemblyman Bradford on board now? Excellent. And we also have uh, Rafael Solizano on as well, correct? Yes, you do. Okay, we've got everybody speak up then so we can hear you loudly and clearly. We just went over generally what the alliance is about and, and why the whole state is a boat that's going to float with the, with greater prosperity for this target population. And I just, uh, on your lovely <clears throat> several different websites, there was there were some riveting statistics I want to run by while our other gentlemen joined in this reindeer game of sorts that communities of color continue to face these longstanding barriers. And you say, uh, and I want us all to consider the statistic, by 2018, 45% of all jobs will require an associate's degree or higher Today, only 27% of African Americans, 26% of U.S. born Latinos, and 14% of Latino immigrants have that level education. So there is, that's the, that's 2018. I don't even know if it's just about that now. So let's give each of uh, the others, Assemblyman Bradford and also Rafael Sorzano, um, just what, what brought you into this alliance. Assemblyman Bradford, would you like to begin? Thank you. And Thank good morning, you. And good I morning. Appreciate you having this dialogue on this important issue. Uh, I was part of the brought on the alliance uh, four years ago when I joined the assembly and was invited to join uh, the Boys and Men of Color Select Committee, then uh, chaired by former Assemblyman Sandra Swanson. And through a series of hearings throughout the state, we just realized how dire the situation was when you talk about progress to advance opportunities for boys and men of color throughout the state of California and this nation. So I was honored this year when Speaker Perez uh, not only reestablished his select committee on the boys and men of color, but appointed me as chair. So this is an issue that has now got not only statewide uh, recognition, but national recognition. Now our Congress now has a boys and men of color select committee. So it just shows the importance of dealing with this issue. Good. That was a later question I was going to have, whether this is a template, since California does lead by example, largely good ones, but sometimes not such good ones. But that's excellent to know. We'll maybe get a chance to open that up a little bit more. So, And the same question for you, Rafael Sorzano, about getting involved with this. 
group, this alliance? Yes, actually, I was very fortunate enough um, to meet young men who went to a camp last year. And meeting these young men, you know, they came. um, I met with them, and they had um, shared their stories about what they have learned in camp. And with that meeting, you know, um, I pretty much um, got connected to this work, right? The work that's happening here locally and also the work that's happening um, at a statewide level. Um, But also before this work, here in Santa Ana, the work with um, boys and men of color is not something that's just recent. This work has been happening, I would say, for the past 20 years. I remember myself when I was, you know, a first year um, in college coming home and participating in a conference similar to this, right? And this is at a time in the 90s where um, also in Santa Ana, we're in a dire situation. We had huge, um, you know, um, incidents of violence, of gang violence happening in the communities in Santa Ana. So it was actually a lot of um, adult allies who came together and actually also um, local um, city council members um, who put together a conference similar to um, what is happening now across the state. Right, because I believe back then these leaders in our communities definitely felt that um, these young men, right, majority in, in this case in Santana, Latino young men, um, were a tremendous untapped resource for the future of the city, right? Um, and in right. order for this city to um, prosper and to move forward, you know, we really had to address some of the issues that these young men um, were going through. And so th- this work actually reminds me, you know, of the um, quote of Jackie Robinson. Um, where he says, um, there's not an America in this country, um, there, there's not an American in this country free um, when everybody is free. And, and with this quote, I believe there's like this belief of kinship, right, where we're all connected. And so I think that's a value that our working group here in Santa Ana really holds at the center, right? When right. we sit together um, Tuesday evenings, adult, youth, women, men, professionals, students, undocumented, citizen, gay, queer, transgender, working family union members, um, we have come to understand that this focus of boys and men of color is important to us because um, they are our fathers, our brothers, our uncles, our cousins, husbands, sons, neighbors. Well, fine. And for those of you who just joined us, we've managed to get all three of these illustrious activists and policymakers uh, collectively here here on Ask a Leader. My guests are Ruben Lizardo and uh, calling it in from uh, from Oakland and calling it in from uh, Santa Ana is Rafael Ramiro Solzano and calling in from his uh, state assembly district in Gardena is Assemblyman Stephen Bradford. And it's all about the Alliance for Boys and Men of Color. And we're going to now look at phenomenal legislative accomplishments in California. As we talk about these were uh, these were the coming to fruition, your setting, your priorities and coalescing throughout the last year and a half, two years. And I suppose when you saw the the composition of the state assembly or both chambers of the legislature, you probably thought you saw some real possibility for uh, for movement. So how did you all work together to pass this broad agenda? And it's and you've already told us why it's important. But this 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 ability for you to coalesce is so important in light of what I would call the maximally dysfunctional national legislative arenas. How did you all pull this together? We can start with Assemblyman Bradford, because you were in the thick of it, watching everybody else bring their 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 pet projects forward. And so where did you make your first move, or what did you see opening up for you? 
Well, I, I think it started with the series of hearings we had two years ago and hearing from these young people themselves who were impactful, uh, their testimony of what they dealt with every day from push-out, expulsion rate uh, in schools, the school, the prison pipeline, and we realized we had to deal with it from a legislative standpoint. And so we were very fortunate this year to pass uh, bills that we feel directly impacted these young folks from uh, identifying uh, avenues to get kids into continuation schools before they're kicked out of school, uh, the notification on gang injunctions. We found out that there were individuals who've been on gang injunctions for 20 years, 30 years, but more importantly, to notify a parent before they were placed on a gang injunction. Um, a bill that I authored uh, dealing with uh, expungement, helping these young folks clean their records because we heard about young folks going to a juvenile uh, hall for minor infractions and coming back out as hardened criminals but with no pathway to get back into school or to find employment. So hopefully some of the legislation that we've passed this year is a result of those series of uh, working with the Alliance and other community groups that are part of this discussion. And I might just add topically that Attorney General Kamala Harris is putting more wind in your wings here with addressing some of the truancy and other sort of expulsion kinds of, of uh, situations. So I think that's a, this is uh, more people that are, are file, falling in line here with, uh, with reversing some of these god-awful trends here. So uh, that was, and so gentlemen, uh, Ruben and Raphael, were you also seeing opportunity knocking too in the, the situation Assemblyman Bradford was talking about? Yeah, and let me say this. I think uh, Mr. Bradford has it completely right that the uh, action plan that his committee developed um, in the previous... The select committee. The select committee, yeah. In the previous iteration, uh, and this year with him taking over as chair, he, he declared at the first meeting we had, this was going to be the year of action. That, that committee has an action plan with 67 things the state can do to remove barriers around school, to target workforce training, to do, deal with the juvenile justice issues we were just talking about, uh, to address issues in health. And under his leadership, members of the committee and other allies when the legislature elected officials have begun to take up each and every one of these recommendations and move them forward. The beauty of the partnership, and this goes back to what Rafael said, the alliance is working on issues that other people have been working on for many years. It's a container for people who've been working on these issues for 10, 20 years to be more coordinated on this and have partners in the legislature to move them. So last session, there was a real focus on kind of uh, stopping the school push-out. This year, if you look at the themes of bills that made it made it out of the legislature and were signed are about removing barriers in some ways to folks who were formerly incarcerated and jobs and so uh, basically there's no um, there's no like game plan that everybody is like in the one room plotting but we're all kind of uh, pushing in the same direction around these bigger changes we want to see and so it's been a unique partnership and we're very grateful to both the local partners that are moving this work, as Rafael said, 10, 20 years in, and Mr. Bradford and the committee and others who are basically taking them up, and they're the ones that are representing them, but we still have to deliver the people so that his colleagues, you know, get us to 50% plus one, and, and then the governor will sign these things to help make them happen. But it's it's not an agenda that will be, you know, finished this year. Nope. So we've got to keep going on these issues, and, and we're, we're glad that people are, are really jumping on it.
So, and so, uh, Rubain, did you want to pick up what your role was in in seeing this legislative agenda getting a, a boost here? Raphael. I'm, I'm sorry, Raf- yes, Raphael? Yeah, you know, um, Thank for you, the working group here in Santana and the, the ones who are involved, we actually participated um, in August, right? So we went up in August to actually talk to our assembly members and our senators, um, around four of them, to talk about these issues that these young men and young women thought, um, you know, um, were, were imperative. They were, they were very important, right? So we took around um, seven young men and young women um, in August, and, and we went and we had these discussions around, like, removing these barriers, right? We right. talked about banning the box. We talked about the issues around the gang database. We talked about even also, you know, Ruben talks about um, removing barriers, um, you know, for people who have been incarcerated. Um, that is definitely true for our residents here in Santana, but also what holds truth um, for our residents here in Santana is also some of the other policies around um, Removing, removing barriers or actually um, policies that separate our families, right? So yes. we're talking about the Trust Act. Um, we're talking about also providing the ability for undocumented people to drive, right? So giving them driver's license. Right. You know, and one of the key things that what we know is that since like March of 2010, right, when Orange County's law enforcement agencies began their partnership with ICE, um, which allowed federal agents to access information and fingerprints of anyone who had been arrested, um, and then they were subject to deportation. I mean, this partnership is like, in, for example, in Los Angeles, nearly 20,000 people have been transferred from jails to ICE custody, right? Wow. And that number is, sim- is very, very close also in Orange County. I mean, what you mentioned earlier around Orange County, what we found from one of um, our centers, our research centers, the Center of Juvenile and Criminal Justice, they found approximately 43% of California youth subject to ICE holds, um, 43% come from Orange County. Wow. Right? That's, yes. Whereas Los Angeles has 2%. So these were very close issues um, that our young men and women also had and were presenting to the assemblymen's and senators, right, for the passage of the Trust Act. So yes. they, they, they definitely felt um, that those that are placed in ICE detention, one, are mostly males, two, have not really committed any um, serious crimes. And so um, the, the pass of the Trust Act was, was actually um, a great win for us here in Santana. Well, let's go into the, the various uh, um, amendments, uh, the, the bills under House Resolution 23, those policies that will improve health and opportunity for the boys and men of color now in California law. I don't know if, uh, Assemblyman Bradford, if you have some pet bills, I don't want to be presumptuous and start listing them without, I'd like for you to to uh, perhaps cite which ones, the, uh, there's all the local control uh, funding uh, formulas, there's everything with, all, between that all the way to what we're talking about, expunging records and other things. So I don't know which one, Assemblyman Bradford, you'd like to highlight. In the, we don't have tons of time left, so I, but I'd like to leave the remainder for talking directly to those policies that were enacted. Well, I quickly I talk about House Resolution 23 that could have not gone forward without the alliance, and we were able to get 55 assembly members to sign on as co-authors. And what House Resolution 23 uh, did was just recognize the senseless killing of Trayvon Martin. Yes. And, uh, and states that it happens all too frequent uh, in our communities and the criminalization of uh, boys and men of color simply because of their race. And uh, uh, another 
field that was of great concern to mine was AB uh, 651, uh, which yes. gives, uh, uh, again, discretion, gives the court more discretion to expunge records. And uh, AB 721, which clarifies what drug trafficking is. We saw enormous disparities when you talk about African-American and Latinos who were stopped with drugs on them. Instead of getting a simple possession charge, they were getting trafficking or transporting as well. An uh, example of that was in San Francisco, where 80% of the drug arrests African-American and Latino. So you're telling me no uh, Caucasian folks use marijuana in San Francisco. I found that hard to believe. Wow. And another glaring example why that legislation was so important was uh, in New York with their stop, question, and frisk. Uh, since that policy has been in place, almost 70% of the individuals who have been stopped, questioned, and frisked have been African-American and Latino. So uh, we think uh, these measures will help address those disparities, as well as Senator Wright's uh, bill dealing with the gang database again and uh, making sure parents are notified when those young folks are placed on a gang database. So, Senate Bill 458 there. The, yes, right. it is. Yeah. Uh-huh. That, okay. Well, uh, uh, were there any additional ones, or should we give the other gentleman a chance to address some of their their uh, assembly bills that uh, now are, are policy, that were, they were signed into law? Well, I'll just say this. I mean, I agree with uh, Mr. Bradford, this and I uh, want to just highlight another set of bills that yes. I think have been really helpful that partners have brought to the table with, again, members of the committee being the actual authors. And there's a set of bills that have to do with, first of all, and this wasn't all the alliances, really, the other partners who've been working on health equity for many years did get the, the state to commit to the largest expansion, the largest mo- model for expanding Medi-Cal coverage to the populations, the families, and the youth that need it the most. We still need to work on that part of it because it doesn't mean that undocumented children are going to necessarily get it, but it was a huge win to get the Medi-Cal expansion the way it was. There's a bill that uh, Ms. Skinner uh, authored and that California's for Safety and Justice uh, you know, put forth that basically will ensure that folks that are young men and women who are coming out of incarceration are signed up for Medi-Cal right away and so that they're able to purchase or get the health care that they need to really strengthen their emotional and, and uh, physical well-being so they can be contributors. So there's a set of health bills uh, that are really, really important as well in this package. And, and as I said, it's unfinished business, so I'll see what Rafael has going for where, what we might work on uh, going forward. Rafael? Well, you know, one thing um, that, that was, that's key and something that we're moving on right now is local control funding formula, right? So um, the, the Boys and Men of Color Working Group, along with um, some other organizations here locally um, that is part of the California Endowment Building Healthy Communities, partnering up to educate the community about, right, this increase of funding that is coming down to our school district that's um, supposed to be used um, to improve equity, right, so to support students with their greatest needs. Um, and so, so this is really good for us. So on October 29th, we're yes. actually going to be holding a forum um, at Century High School to educate the community about local control funding formula. So that is one of the things where we're kind of lifting up to the community. Like this was a key win. And also now it's our, our role to educate the community of how they could take um, advantage of this. Work. Well, let's be sure that for uh, in this window here of opportunity with the podcast, we can you can provide me with additional information. Um, uh, it's the 29th. That's a Tuesday, a week from today, where um, at 
this this forum will be held at Century High School. So um, I want to get back before I set up my podcast. I'd like to get more details, but um, but maybe you could just mention it now. If they, I suppose we could uh, direct people to the, uh, the the website for the uh, Alliance for. I've got it here, folks. It's not far from well, Boys and Men of Color at PolicyLink.org, or it could be Alliance for BMOC. Dot org for those details. Yes, and then for Santa Ana, you could also locally look us up on Facebook, Santa Ana Boys and Men of Color. Okay, well, that that should be the best way and most expedient way to convey that so we can. So did you want to bring up, you were talking about the health equity, education equity uh, being a part of this. Um, are there uh, some other, you have some priorities. There's a couple of bills that are two-year bills, so that will be taken up It'll be a push in the last of this whole session that ends when, at the end, well, into the summer and the early fall of 2014, and that's the willful defiance that would limit the arbitrary willful defiance disciplinary standard. That's part of the. Um, I think maybe the attorney general is going to be looking at that. That's not a grounds for. Uh, for expulsion, and there's the California Promise Neighborhood Cradle to Career Initiative. I think Rubain was mentioning a little, uh, Rafael was talking a little bit, and Rubain. Yeah, and I think they're both very important, and I think uh, the willful defiance category is responsible for a great majority of the kids that are being uh, basically kicked out of schools for really ill-defined kind of categories, and it's not that they're not acting out, but are we saying that uh, any teacher can decide based on a person wearing a certain cap or not, not uh, you know, doing exactly everything that the person wanted them to do, that that's, that's enough to have them get kicked out of school. Yes, let's, let's help them through restorative justice approaches to actually start learning how to actually resolve their conflicts or to take control of their education. So Wolf of Defiance, if we can get that one across, it, it was it moved out of the legislature and sent to the governor in the last session. He vetoed it, and we need everybody's help to get the governor to see that uh, closing the front gate of the prison pipeline is really about stopping the expulsion of kids out of schools, and that's what Attorney General Harris has said. And I think the other thing that hopefully we'll work on besides these two-year bills is something that Mr. Bradford has been a leader on is basically how do we prepare folks for jobs and get them the jobs that they need. And there's a a number of things the state is doing, investing in growing the health care sector and growing infrastructure that a little bit more can be done to both create training pipelines for young men of color, but also ensure if the state is paying for the increase in these jobs, that a certain percentage of those jobs are set aside and, and, and these young folks are welcome into them. Well, I, I hate to say this, but we are we must close at this point. I don't I run totally out of time, run over, and there's so much to cover, and I'm going to do justice to all the work that's going on with the podcast that's going to give everybody a chance to go to the right websites, and thanks for that Facebook reference, uh, and I hope that at the forum uh, two Tuesdays from now, or t- a week from today, uh, that uh, the Santa Ana Boys Men and Boys of Color uh, Alliance Facebook can... Uh, you can get more details then. So I want to thank all three of you gentlemen on the show today. That's We've been listening to Assemblyman Stephen Bradford from the Gardena State Assembly District, and we've been talking with Ruben Lizardo, Policy Link Senior Director, and not lastly but leastly, Rafael Ramirez Solorzano with the Santa Ana agencies here for advancing the human relations. So, gentlemen... I not only want to honor what you do, but I want to, too, thank you so much for giving your time today on Ask a Leader to take this up with us. 
Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you for your opportunity and your commitment to this issue as well. Thank okay. You. All the best to all of you. Take care. Take care. Bye. Well, thank everybody. We're going to take, we're going to seg away from after that lovely piece. We're going to talk in the second half of the show, what's remaining with Richard Matthew, who is my second guest coming up. He is the director of the Center for Unconventional Security Affairs at UCI's School of Social Ecology. Please do not go away. Okay, everybody, thank you for staying with us. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is... Professor Richard Matthew, who leads one of the most exciting careers on the campus, whose itinerary would flatten most human beings. It's kind of a wonder Richard is still alive. Richard is Professor of International and Environmental Politics in the Schools of Social Ecology and Social Science at the University of California, Irvine, and he's the founding director of the Center for Unconventional Security Affairs. He received his B.A. at McGill and his master's and Ph.D. at Princeton. And after several illustrious appointments at other universities, he joined UCI in the late 1990s. He studies the environmental dimensions of conflict and peace building, climate change adaptation in conflict and post-conflict societies, and transnational threat systems. His extensive fieldwork includes conflict-riddled zones in South Asia and East, Central, and West Africa. He is a senior fellow at the International Institute for Sustainable Development in Geneva, a senior fellow at the Monk School at the University of Toronto, a senior member of the United Nations Expert Advisory Group on Environment, Conflict, and Peacebuilding, and a member of the World Conservation Union's Commission on Environmental, Economic, and Social Policy. His latest publication, on top of a heap of his extensive work, is entitled Integrating Climate Change into Peacebuilding. With all of those undertakings, we're very fortunate that he could find the time to join us today to talk mainly about his founding and maintaining the Center for Unconventional Security Affairs, or CUSA as we may be calling it here. Welcome, Richard Matthew, to Ask a Leader. Thanks very much. Well, can you tell us generally and briefly, the scope of the center and how you got this whole venture started, Richard. Uh, well, the center has basically three components. We have a, a uh, lab that studies environment and human security. We focus largely on how do you introduce sustainability into, into areas coming out of or recovering from violent conflict. Uh, we do a lot of work in that regard with, with the UN peacebuilding um, groups and, and with the U.S. government. Um, we've, we've worked a lot in, in South Asia and uh, throughout you know, Sub-Saharan Africa. Right. Uh, we also do some work on, on sort of hydrological intensification, especially how, how climate change might or is um, and might in the future affect large parts of South Asia. But Richard, I, I'm sort of I'm interested, and in, I know you had a, a terrific body of a work going into creating the center. But what what possessed you to say I've got we've got to do it this way? What what's that kernel of of uh, of the the and the germination of what has become an amazing center? 
I mean, really, the, the, the idea of the center was to create a place where, where graduate students and undergraduate students could interact with, with faculty um, at UCI and, and around the world and with uh, practitioners. So I wanted a, a hub for a sort of global network of people working on these types of issues um, that, that you know, my students and other students could plug into to get their research and their careers going. And can you tell us, just generally, I mean, if people can, we'll talk about your website just briefly near the end, and uh, there's opportunities for people to donate, but where, who's generally supporting this venture? I mean, most of the funding comes from uh, foundations or from, from uh, you know, the government. So we, we, have, we recently, with engineering, with the engineering school, received a several million dollar grant from the National Science Foundation. So that, and that pays for a large number of of PhD students over the next four years who will be working at the center. Um, so, so yeah, so NSF, um, private foundations like, like MacArthur, and then probably about a third of the funding has come from uh, individuals giving us gifts over the past several years. Right. I, mean, I know from some of the, the awards that you've presented and some of those donors have come from, I know the Samuelis, and I guess they're, they're also supporting the engineering school, but they directly support you too. So. They've been but, very generous. Very generous. They, yeah. they get what they get. What you're doing there. Well, and we're when we're looking at the kind of catastrophes, uh, I just many of us are maybe used to looking at them, sort of starting from what I would call bellicose statements or repressive leadership of heads of state that set off the catastrophes. But what you're looking about, looking at perhaps more centrally, is the depletion of resources like water and energy that you say. Is a, it's a trigger. It amplifies. It perpetuates humanitarian crises. Let's let's talk about uh, how you reach into those zones for investigation. Well, you know, um, we, I started off working in in uh, northern Pakistan, just trying to understand whether the enormous and sort of changes that were taking place in the environment, very very rapid rates of deforestation, um, could be linked in any in any particular way to the diffuse sort of violence that was characteristic of the area. Because what happens is, is, is you know, when the, when the natural capital is degraded, people tend to lose their traditional livelihoods. They have to, they have to do something else. Um, they might have to move into an, into an area where there are resources, um, which can bring them into conflict with people. They might have to move across the border. They might have to get, become involved in something like, in, in, in that part of the world, drug trafficking, whatever. Um, right. So, so when you, if, if you've got, especially agricultural societies or mining societies that have depended on a certain way of living for, for generations, and then suddenly that's changed quickly, they're flooded out or, they're, or, or, or the, the uh, resources depleted, um, there's a sort of period where, where it's very turbulent as they try and reestablish themselves. And uh, people can take advantage of that. They can, you know, mobilize people around, around uh, sort of blaming one group for the, for the problems. They can, they can you know, uh, and then once, once a uh, conflict gets started, the, the resources can sometimes start to get exploited, whether it's timber or diamonds or whatever, um, in really unsustainable ways to either enrich some of the people involved in the conflict or to pay for the conflict. And as you say, that in amidst a crisis or, a, let's say, or an environmental disaster, 
emergency resources are going to be rapidly consumed that would have been the resources that would sustain a a civilian uh, stable situation. So it's it's very expensive to have a crisis occur, in other words. I mean, well, these, you know, exactly. Um, wars are, are enormously expensive. They cost probably an average of in the range of 50 or 60 uh, billion dollars. And, and that's a, and a lot of these countries have, have, you know, gross domestic products of a fraction of that, maybe two or five or $10 billion. So the damage of a, of a, significant war is enormous to a country. Infrastructure is destroyed, you know, the economy is, is, is stopped for, for maybe years, um, and so on. And one of the things is that, that people have to cope, they have to survive. So they move into protected areas, they, they you know, um, they start to consume the, those, those resources that are maybe very, very important in terms of providing services or acting as a buffer, so that when a disaster hits, um, it, it's much worse. So you often find that you know a war zone weakens a, a war weakens a country, and then a flood takes advantage of those structural and and uh, weaknesses to impose enormous damage. Well, I'm really fascinated with the way uh, you you alluded to some of the the arms of the the Center for Unconventional Security um, Affairs. Mm-hmm. That um, I'm I'm really taken by your setting creating. What is Beth Carlin is heading up the center's transform? Excuse me, transformational media lab, examining the vehicles by which disparaging policymakers or the public when it comes to addressing climate effects. That 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 media outlet format and platform can move the message through that there are counterproductive trends underway that can be reconsidered. I mean, the transformational media lab really tries to look at. at Two things. One is is um, how science information is communicated, especially through things like documentary film and social media campaigns, um, in ways and 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 why in some cases it's very effective, and in other cases people invest a lot in getting a message out, but it's not effective. Um, so we do a lot of, of research on why certain documentary films work and why others don't work, and we've developed our own you know our own theories of. of how to make how to communicate science effectively, um, and we also look at at energy efficiency and why you know technologies that that might be attractive um, when you look at them from a science perspective sometimes are greeted with a lot of resi- resistance by people who are worried about uh, about you know these new technologies. So so we look at those things in the uh, in that lab. It's, and it, it is exciting. It's an exciting group of people. That that's where I, I would say most. Most of our students' work is in coding documentary films and, and doing that sort of activity. Okay. Well, for those who, of you who've just joined us, my guest is Professor Richard Matthew with the center he's created and founded and directing now, Center for Unconventional Security Affairs at UCI. It's the focus of this interview with Richard Matthew here on uh, Ask a Leader 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming in landmine riddle fields and water stress zones all over the world. Well, um, I I guess, um, to not to hop around, but I guess we are with the, the time remaining here, the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, some fondly written note call it, their latest report will likely conclude that the adverse climate change effects are widespread and worsening. In the next decade, it's going to be a crucial period 
for the security and welfare of many regions of the planet. So what do you, Richard, suggest is the most mean? You talked about the media, um, the lab, but what do you think is the most meaningful and possibly most direct a way in which we can all respond? Or in another way, how, what are the opportunities for integrating climate change into peace building? I mean, I think that, that uh, climate science is, is quite compelling, and there's no doubt that we're experiencing uh, uh, you know, some very dramatic changes across the planet. But I think what we're, we're learning over time is that, is that the uh, social impacts of these changes are very mixed. Um, some places are, are, are suffering a great deal already and will continue to suffer. Other places um, are, are, you know, are going to find that it's rather much easier to cope with these changes. So, and some places will actually probably derive some source of benefits from these changes. So I think that one, one, one big concern now is that as we learn more about climate science, there is a risk that it won't draw all the world together because people are affected in different ways at different times yes. to different degrees. So if you're in a, in a, in a, in a developing country that's, that's vulnerable to flooding, you have a very, very you know, serious challenge in the next 10 or 20 or 30 years. But if you're in a, in a mountainous region um, you know, that's in, in say, uh, uh, an upper latitude, um, you may not feel any effects for quite a long time, or the, or the effects might be quite manageable. It might be quite easy to adapt to that changes. So I think that we're seeing, that with, with, with more science, we're seeing just how diverse the uh, impacts of climate change are likely to be. And you've localized the regions in the world uh, in your work, your research, where the disasters loom most intensely around equatorial zones and the highly populated areas that are downstream of the Himalayan plateau. I mean, that's that's where... It's it's building and and right even right around the Indian Ocean, uh, uh, lower lying zones was where they're getting hit t- month after month right now. It's I mean the climate change is massively affecting them. I mean I think that, that you're exactly right. I think that you know on the one hand South Asia, Southeast Asia, even even large parts of China, um, they share water. They sh- they largely share um, the fresh the surface water. Um, they're in an area that is highly vulnerable to certain types of natural disasters anyways, just because of their, of their, of their elevation and geography. And they've got a, an, half the world's population is living in this area. Nine billion people, if you can imagine, a stressed water supply for nine billion people. That, that's keeping, I, that'll keep me up all night uh, for, the, for the rest of my life. <laughs> I think that there are certainly areas of, of India, Pakistan, China, which are which are really going to have a, a tremendous, a tremendous challenge dealing with water um, issues. So, does the center have a way of addressing that? As you said, as you acknowledge that everybody's, uh, each of those societies, those countries are going to have a different reaction instead of working together on that. Is there some way that the Center for Unconventional Security Affairs has a way to to assist in in the highest possible level, or maybe maybe the the lower level and bubble it up that that can meaningfully deal with what, how 9 billion people are going to be served here? I mean, you know, we're, obviously we can, we can play a role, and, and one of the things we're doing right now is, is um, UCI has developed some very interesting um, technologies to, to sort of model hydrological intensification. And we're, we're, we now have a, a very big research project looking at how do we, 
how do we communicate this effectively to people? How do we how do we make this particular science, uh, uh, the science of, of flood dynamics? How do we make it meaningful to people so that people feel okay? You know, I can do something about this because the fact is, a lot of these, a lot of the changes, the world is going to have to adapt to. Um, they're they're in place. Um, so the question is, are they? Is the world going to adapt to them? You know. Uh, early and, and, and efficiently, or is the adaption, adaptation going to take place only after massive catastrophes and, and breakdowns occur? Um, so we're trying, to, we're trying to develop a set of tools that, that might, we hope, you know, make it easier for people to understand what their options are and to start to realize why it would be good to, to uh, act soon. But I don't know if, I don't know if it'll work. Uh, you know, there's, everybody in the, in the planet has... Um, a full agenda right now, and there are lots of things that that seem on a daily basis more important than dealing with climate change. Well, so, I, yes, you know, it isn't. It isn't always. I think that much of the world agrees that this is a huge problem, but they've got other things that they need to do today or this week or this month first. So we've got to try and figure a way to make to make uh, what we do know meaningful to people, and and to make it present it in ways which, which you know, allows people to see the options, because there, there are a lot of options out there. There are lots of things that we can do. Well, that, and it's not readily apparent right looking at the website, but I guess that's something I'd ask for that those tangible, uh, those uh, manageable options to be right there out in front so that people know either where, how they start carrying the water, so to speak, metaphorically speaking, not literally, but literally is the outcome. But um, I... That because it's so it's such an, a massively overwhelming agenda that uh, I think any anywhere you can make it easy for people to break it down. I know that then the media affairs, uh, the media arm, the, uh, the transformational media lab that uh, you're making that available. Maybe there's uh, some sort of shorter loops that can be available on the center website. So it's and I know when I talked to Jay Familieri earlier about a year and a half ago that I know what keeps him awake at nights is that he just can't do enough as a hydrological engineer. And so I guess that's probably what's doing it to you, too. We work very closely with Jay. Yes. He does yeah. some fascinating science. And I think that you're right. We probably need to start put together, putting together some of the success stories and some of the powerful tools that we have available um, because we've spent an awful lot of time telling people about the, the risks, the heightened risks and the, and the potential you know, breakdowns that, that lie in the future. And we need to remind people that already we're seeing forms of ingenuity, forms of innovation, yes. which are quite, comp- which are quite you know, uh, amazing. Well, there is a sustainable sustainability series that's largely put on in the middle to late spring that folks can go to the website for the um, it's cusa.uci.edu and look for that sustainability series when it comes around next year. There was a lot that's already happened this month, so there aren't really any particular upcoming events I want to post people on, but I want to make sure everybody has on their direct dial the um, the cusa.uci.edu website. And I was going to close. I didn't realize that you already received MacArthur Fellowship money because I thought you were MacArthur material, Richard. So you <laughs> you, you certainly got ahead of me on that one. So um, I, uh, And I'm thinking it must be maddening for you. It must be plain just frustrating when you're trying to address these sizable problems that the political attention and the public funding are diverted as they are now, squandering all kinds of opportunities uh, when we're watching sequestration and government shutdowns. That must also interrupt what work you need to keep doing. 
I mean, I think that that it is. Um, I think it's very unfortunate that our that our country is is you know experiencing this political gridlock, um, and it, and it does it does make it very difficult for for people in in Washington or or you know in state capitals to really take on some of the longer term challenges, and I think that you know living in a world of of sort of quick impact policies and, and short-term fixes is ultimately not going to be nearly as effective or as, as, as cost-effective as taking, on, taking a little bit of a longer view on, on how do we manage water in our big cities, how do we manage waste. Because from New York City to Los Angeles, uh, we have enormous, enormous potential for flooding catastrophe, if, if, uh, and we've already seen it. Um, but the potential is huge because we've got more water in the in the oceans. We've got um, more velocity. We've got drainage systems that are old and and not up to the task. We've got more people. Um, so we have we have some some big challenges, uh, and and it seems like you know our, our political leadership is not able to really take on these big challenges. And I think that the, that we see this in in education and healthcare is, and and critical infrastructure as everywhere. Well. So that's, well, a, that's really unfortunate, and I think that, you know, that the fact that we watched $30 billion apparently sort of just disappear d- d- over yes. a two-week shutdown is, is, is shocking, and people, people should really, really be upset with, with a, a government that's prepared to, to do that to us. Well, Richard, here's the, the, the uh, takeaway I'm thinking, or the assignment here uh, at the close. I can, why doesn't Beth Carlin just put together at the Center's Transformational Media Lab a uh, a very graphic kind of scenario and send it to the uh, the House of Representatives leadership and uh, other um, senators that I could name, and I think we can all imagine who I'm thinking of, and give them a very graphic uh, rendering of what's coming up and that it's time to, to stop this ridiculous hamster wheel of uh, unproductive activity so that the big projects that the Center for Unconventional Security Affairs is working on and other like-minded uh, ventures can, can do your work without this kind of unnecessary interruption. I mean, I think, I think that, that you're right. We do need to you know, um, come up with some some case for for taking a longer term view. I don't I don't think we can never expect to get the entire country on board for any of these issues. Just the so leadership. I, I think we need to get we need to really focus on supporting those people who are already trying to to make a difference, and we have to make sure that we don't let them, you know, sort of die on the vine because because of of other people's political agenda. So I think we really do need to support the people who, who understand these issues and, and, and so on. And, and I think that what we should all be doing is, is signaling that, that having the U.S. government shut down um, for the sort of reasons that it did is, is, is really not acceptable. Oh, completely. Um, well, Richard, I, we've run out of time, and I, I want to thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks so much for all your time. My pleasure. And that was, folks, thank you, Richard Matthew. He's professional of international environmental politics in the School of Social Ecology at UCI, the founder and director of the Center for Unconventional Security Affairs. We're going to let you go. Thanks again, Richard. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. That's my doomsday, I can't help it. Brahms' first symphony does it. I can't resist. Before I send you all over to Jorge, I would like to make two announcements because 
I can. The Islamic Institute of Orange County is inviting everyone to their mosque this Sunday, October 27th from 11 to 4 p.m. to their open mosque day. It's at 1220 North State College Boulevard in Anaheim at 714-533-6246 or you can check out their website at www.iioc.com. And I'll be having Imam um, Mustafa Umar on my show uh, on Christmas Eve, folks. But for now, he's extending everyone this lovely invitation, of course. I want the last announcement to be about the KUCI Fall Fund Drive right around the corner. It starts next Monday, October 28th, and continues till November 8th. Your support is and will always be appreciated. That's all the time I have today. Next week, I'm going to have on Professor Vicki Ruiz, who is currently chair of Chicano Studies at UCI, to cover everything from the PBS series Latino Americans, she starred in it, to the Day of the Dead traditions. Then we'll hear from Claire Trevor Brent School of the Arts Dean Joe Lewis, who has much to say about another year filled with very fine arts. Next up, as always, is George Rosales with his hat. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening.